Good afternoon. Um, one of the great blessings that God has given me is always, uh, always give me like 50 minutes to an hour when I come up to speak. I don't know why that is, but I do not uh, question that. Um, if you could stand up, if you are able, as you read God's word, we will be reading two passages related to our topic, which is the Holy Spirit residing and presiding in the church. Our first passage is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. If we can rise up, if we are able, as we read God's word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 to 22 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Our second passage uh, that I want to highlight is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 to 16. And that says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. May we seated. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word that is so powerful and that speaks afresh to us uh, each day moment and each morning that we bring it forward. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit, who is the author of your word and who interprets it for us. And today, especially as we focus uh, for a while, oh Lord, on his role within your community, we pray, O oh Lord, that you'll grant us uh, through him the wisdom and the knowledge that is needed to discern these things and to apply it in our ongoing life. In Jesus' precious name we ask. Amen. So this topic, um, the Holy Spirit residing and presiding in the church, it's part of our series on church distinctives, which uh, our brother Vijay started last week. He will focus on the topic of Christ, the head. Um, and very often when we speak of the Holy Spirit's role in the church, it's very easy to, to compartmentalize it into one of two things. One is why we do our services uh, especially the Sunday service a particular way. The other one is why we exhibit certain gifts and we say certain gifts have passed away. And what I wanted to do today is to 
not so much focus on those aspects as much as trying to build a systematic understanding of what the Spirit is tasked to do in the eternal plan of God in the midst of God's people. And so we are going to focus on the Spirit's activity within the church, specifically within the congregation, the community of God's people. And it is entirely possible that I have, you know, bitten off more than I can chew in a sense. Um, But hopefully, you know, this will be the opposite of a bad meal. You know, like a bad meal, it tastes good at first, and then you have indigestion the next day. If you can, you know, uh, suffer a little queasiness in the beginning, as you ruminate on it, God willing, uh, you might be able to learn uh, something that is distinct about the Holy Spirit's work in our midst. Uh, first off, we have to understand what are distinctives, right? From the sound of the word, it sounds like what makes us different. And that's not exactly true. What distinctive means is actually like a distinguished characteristic. It has really nothing to do with difference as much as what distinguishes us. So for example, you could say a, distingu- a distinctive of human beings is that we have opposable thumbs of very high dexterity. But that doesn't mean that only Melvin has opposable thumbs, right? Like everyone has opposable thumbs who are human beings. So distinctive is a distinguishing characteristic. It's not necessarily, though in some cases it might, it's not necessarily what makes this church different from every other church. It's basically what makes us characteristically a church. And all distinctives are and have to be theologically based and founded in the word of God. The expressions, as we um, discussed last week, the the expressions of the distinctives may be localized, but the distinctives themselves are to be founded in the word of God. And they need to have practical implications on how we lead our life as a community, as opposed to, you could say, a statement of faith, not that it doesn't have practical implications, but when you say a distinctive, you have to be able to say, what does that mean practically in the ongoing life of the church? So when we look at the topic of the Holy Spirit presiding and residing in the church, the first question we have to ask is, is it appropriate to focus on the Holy Spirit immediately after we have focused on Jesus Christ, the head of the church? And and the second question we need to ask, in what sense is the Holy Spirit presiding in the church? So for example, one uh, expression of the word president is like uh, the president of the United States, right? Like Donald Trump, who is a, um, in a sense, he's a sovereign ruler under the, you know, even though in a democracy they say there are checks and balances, but the head of the government is the president, and he dictates what is to be done. The other form of the word president is you find in countries like India and Germany and so on, where the president is more of a figurehead, uh, a stamp, you could say, a rubber stamp, but really the power resides somewhere else, maybe in the prime minister or so on. And we'll see that when we talk about the word presiding, it has nothing to do with either of these expressions. We have to we go to the Bible to understand what we mean when we say the Holy Spirit presides over us. So when we look at the question of whether it's appropriate to place an emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit, we answer that by actually looking at the New Testament. 
if you consider the, 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 the chronological development of the church in the New Testament, you can see that Jesus himself promises the Holy Spirit as a helper. In, in John chapter 14, verse 16 to 17, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And John chapter 16 and verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he promises the Spirit as the, as the progression of his ministry. And then he says, he asked the disciples to wait for the arrival of the Spirit in a very visible manner, in Jerusalem, and we read this in Acts chapter 1, and then we know on the day of Pentecost when the church is formed in Acts chapter 2, there is the visible appearance of the Spirit to inaugurate the New Testament church era. So we say, you know, in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them a turn. So we see Jesus himself lays out the sequence that after I leave, the Holy Spirit will come and inaugurate the church age. And then we look at the great church uh, epistles in, in a sense, the epistles which you know, give us the majority of the doctrine of how we lead church life. So if you look at the book of Ephesians as you read, the blessings of Christ are closely related to the work of the Spirit in unifying the body of Christ and in its ongoing conduct, in its ongoing walk as we say in the book of, in the epistle of Ephesians. In the other primary epistle for church life, which is 1 Corinthians, you can see Paul focuses in chapter 1 on Christ, the wisdom of God. And then in chapter 2, he, wa- he focuses on the wisdom from or of the Spirit. So that is the, you know, how Paul says, you know, we lay our focus first on Christ, and then we lay our focus on the Spirit. And, and we have to remember, if you keep in mind the troubles that inflicted the Corinthian church, their issues stemmed from one, a misunderstanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and secondly, a misunderstanding of the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you can see that is relevant even today, that where churches go wrong is one, to misunderstand the work of Jesus Christ, And then secondly, to misunderstand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's appropriate for us to focus on the Holy Spirit after we have spent our last week talking about Jesus Christ as the head. And we looked at that expression, the Holy Spirit residing and presiding over us. What do we mean by the word residing to take residence? And that's in the passage we read from John chapter 14 as an example. It says, You know him, that is Jesus saying, you know the Spirit, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he will take residence. That's where we get the the term of residing. What about presiding? And, And that, you know, there's many references that we can look at, but the one that I wanted to highlight today is John chapter 16, verse 13 to 14. It says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take 
what is mine and declare it to you. So the, the, the primary sense of the word presiding when we relate it to the Holy Spirit is the sense of, of, of guidance, of leading in the form of guidance as opposed to a sense of ruling, which is the, the ministry of ruling within the church is the right, the privilege of Jesus Christ. But the, the ministry of guidance, of, of prompting, of, of leading us towards Christ, towards the glories of Christ, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we get that uh, expression, residing and presiding in the church. Now if you Google this expression, you'll find that the only uh, traditions which seem to nowadays use that tend to be brethren congregations. And which is kind of interesting why that is the case. But it is not a brethren, necessarily a brethren formulation. This idea is expressed throughout the history of the church. In fact, if you read many um, you know, older works of theology, you will find the exact terminology. For example, if you read um, Abraham Kuyper's The Work of the Holy Spirit, he uses the exact same terminology, the presiding nature of the Holy Spirit in the church. And, and, and those of you who might not know, Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch theologian of the Reformed tradition. He's the father of what we call neo-Calvinism. So it is not necessarily an exclusive brethren tradition, but somehow it's only the brethren tradition which has kind of propagated on an ongoing basis into this present day, and, and, and I'm not sure why that is the case. So when we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church, we have to go back to the Bible and say what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit and how that informs our understanding of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church. You know, in the, at the turn of the um, last century, uh, the, the Holy Spirit was called the displaced member of the Trinity or, or the Cinderella of the Trinity, as in, you know, Cinderella shows up at the ball but disappears at midnight. Like, there wasn't a proper uh, emphasis on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But with the, obviously, the advent of, you know, the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement, perhaps today the opposite is true, right? We, we have an enhanced focus on the Spirit within, uh, you know, the, the, the wider Christian world. So you'll have songs uh, which talk about, you know, worshiping the Holy Spirit, not that that is wrong. The Holy Spirit is a member, a full-fledged person of the Trinity, and, and all of the attributes of deity are his. All of the worship that we can accord to God the Father and God the Son are equally accordable to God the Spirit. But we have to look at the Bible to see how we go about honoring the Spirit in our midst. So the Bible says, obviously, that he is God. Uh, he's omniscient, right? We read in first chap- uh, the first chapter of the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, which we just read, you know, the Spirit searches the depths of God and He is God. So He's omniscient, He's omnipresent. David says, you know, where shall I go from your Spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? So He is present everywhere. He's omnipotent, He's powerful. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, we read that it's the Spirit who acts as the agent of creation. Uh, so He is all-powerful. In Romans chapter you know, 1 and verse 4, it expresses uh, and the idea that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness, the Holy Spirit, by His resurrection from the dead. So the Holy Spirit 
is omnipotent and he is called God. You know, some people, Jehovah's Witnesses will come and say, oh, there's nowhere in the Bible that says Holy Spirit is God. Like if you, but if you go to Acts chapter 5, you know, when we look at the case of Ananias and Sapphira and, and, and Peter accuses them of lying to the Holy Spirit, then he says in, in chapter uh, 5 and verse 4, you have not lied to man but to, but to God. So he's referred to as God in, in the Bible. And he's a person, right? When we hear the word spirit, most people associate that with like the force in Star Wars, like an impersonal kind of energy. But he's a person, he has intellect. You know, John chapter 14, verse 26 says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. So he's a person with intelligence, uh, because only people with intelligence can teach. And then he's a person with emotions, right? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 said, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's, that's an emotional capacity. And then he has will, like he, he takes decisions, right? And, 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 and one of the examples of that is in Acts, when in Acts chapter 13 it says, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So he has the will, he has the intelligence, and he has the emotion that we would ascribe to a person. So he's, a, he's God and he's a person, of, and, in, and, and he's the third person of the Trinity. But we have to come to the New Testament to fully understand the revelation of the Holy Spirit. It's only within the final revelation of the Son of God, as Jesus Christ, that we also get the full revelation of the person and of the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you look at the life of Jesus, he's fully involved in the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God, right? We see the Holy Spirit came over Mary. That's how Jesus was conceived. Then we read Jesus was led in the Spirit in various instances. He was led in the Spirit to the wilderness, or he was led by the Spirit to a certain place. Um, he's declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection through the Spirit, which we read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. So, so he's fully involved in the, in the life and the ministry of the Son on this earth. And then Jesus himself proclaims the coming ministry of the Spirit in a full extent of what the ministry of the Spirit is in the world. In John chapter 16, if you go to verse 7 to verse 11, it says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, we read this, that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is revealed in its fullest extent in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus Christ. And that word is very important, the word helper. In, in older translations, you would have rendered it um, comforter or counselor or advocate. It's the Greek word uh, parakletos. And if you look at John chapter 14, which you read, it says, he will give you another helper. The word another there is the word allos, right? And there are two words in Greek you can use for the word another. One is heteros, which is another of a different kind. So if someone says, I'm going to get another car, 
but then what answered is I had a sedan and then I went and got a, like a big truck. They're, they're another of a different kind. But the word aloes is another of the same kind. So as I, I got a car, I used to have a Honda Civic, now I have a Toyota uh, Corolla or something like that. So, so another of the same kind. And who is the helper? Jesus says he'll give you another helper. So the helper, if you read John chapter, uh, the first epistle of John, uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a paracletos with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the another helper is the Holy Spirit of the same kind as Jesus Christ in the sense that the ministry that he does is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ to his people. In another way, you can put, put it as the Holy Spirit fully represents the ministry of Jesus Christ within us and in our midst that Jesus Christ himself does at the right hand of the Father. So where Jesus Christ is the, interme- he's the intercessor, he's the, he is the mediator, in a sense, the Holy Spirit within us does the same ministry. That's why we read, the Holy Spirit helps us pray. Like he helps us in an intercessory capacity and so on. So the, fullest, uh, the, the Holy Spirit fully represents Jesus in his indwelling of Christians. Then we look at the Bible to see what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to point people towards the Son of God and, and, and focus them exclusively on Him. So we read in John chapter 15, verse 26, the Spirit of truth, He will bear witness about me. In John chapter 16, it says, verse 14, He will glorify me for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit does not draw attention to himself, directly or indirectly. This is what J.I. Packer says, the mark of the entire biblical presentation of the Spirit is a certain indirectness, since it is either the Father or the Son, or simply God in his fullness, who is the focus of attention, never the Spirit himself in isolation. His executive role is a supporting one. His task and his achievement is always to exalt the Father the Father and the Son. Therefore, it is wholly appropriate for Christian communities to evaluate the, the rightness, you could say, of their ministry, of their worship, by asking themselves the question, where does the focus land? If you go to a community where inevitably the focus of worship lands on the Holy Spirit, we can say with full conviction from the Bible that there's something wrong with that picture. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to call attention to himself. We're not saying it is inappropriate to worship the Holy Spirit. We can worship the Holy Spirit. We have a song, you know, it says, Father, we adore you, you know, the Son, we adore your Spirit. That is entirely appropriate. But that is not to be the overwhelming focus of Christian worship. And if that is the case, we have the right to say with whole conviction that there's something wrong in that picture. J. 
Just as God draws people to the Son who glorifies the Father through his works, so the Spirit leads those same people to bring glory to Son, glory to the Son in, in, in the triune, in the God-ordained, calibrated symphony of Trinitarian worship. Our focus as we worship is on the Son, and the Holy Spirit points us toward Him. And then how does He conduct His ministry? In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit's ministry is conducted through the revelation of the Word of God and the illumination and the understanding He provides of that Word. So we read in 1 Corinthians that He is the Spirit of truth. He will guide you into the truth, and, and, and He reveals the truth to us through the Spirit. If you read 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 to 21, we see that the Holy Spirit is the author of the scriptures. It says 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 to 21 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the author of the scriptures, and he helps us understand the scriptures. That is the ministry, the primary means by which the Holy Spirit conducts his ministry. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of revelation, but the revelation has already been given. And he illuminates that revelation and he helps us understand it. That is how he conducts his ministry. Then we look at what is the goal of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is to transform God's people individually and as a community into the likeness of the Son, as you read Romans chapter 12, verse 2, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Romans chapter 8, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the goal of the ministry of the Spirit, to transform God's people, to aid in the transformation of God's people. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we know that you know, in Ephesians it says that when we believed in chapter 1, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then we are called to be walking and filled with the Spirit. You know, the Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So walk, be filled and walk in the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, you know, same passage earlier in verse 17, it says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to transform God's people into the, uh, the image of the Son of God. The last thing we have to remember about the, the biblical presentation of the Holy Spirit is that the predominant disposition of the Holy Spirit towards the believer and the community of God's people is not one of force or of conquest, but of gentle conviction and persuasion. What do I mean by that? What we mean is that there is no biblical warrant for the idea of the Holy Spirit 
taking over the control, the intellect, the will, the personality of a believer, rendering him without self-control. And there's a lot to be um, you know, uh, understood and taught about that, but I want to focus on two specific verses. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. One of the, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to be a paracletos, which is to be a comforter. So what Paul is saying is that he who is your comforter, you are able to grieve him. Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19 says, do not quench the Spirit. And when you look at the word quench, how did the Holy Spirit come upon the waiting congregation in Acts chapter 2? He came as if he was fire. What is Paul saying in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19? He says, do not quench the fire. So in the mystery of the, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, how he performs his ministry within us, there is the sense that we can resist him, we can grieve him, we can, in some sense, uh, frustrate the progress of the Holy Spirit in our life. And that is the biblical testimony of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which renders a lot of the current ideas of what the Holy Spirit does unbiblical. The Holy Spirit doesn't take up people and slam them against the wall. He doesn't, he doesn't explode in glittering gold. He's a person, and the Bible says, as a person, he can be resisted. His ministry is one of convicting, yet gentle, persuasion so that we can be transformed through the illumination of the word into the likeness of Jesus Christ on the day of redemption. And we have to remember that because all of these things should inform how we perceive the work of the Holy Spirit in the church of Christ. And I want to focus on three specific items or, or, or uh, things the Holy Spirit does in the, in the church. First, the Holy Spirit's role in the building up of the church. Secondly, the Holy Spirit's role in the sanctification of the church. And lastly, the Holy Spirit's role in the exercise and expression of spiritual gifts within the church. So the Holy Spirit's role in the building of the church. We get that uh, verse in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, which we read. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit build up the church? Before we go to you know, what primarily concerns today, we have to remember that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to, make, uh, is to aid in the making of disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and the ministry of conviction of sin and judgment is given to the Holy Spirit, as we read. So a a primary means in which the Holy Spirit builds up the church is by drawing people out of the world into the church of Jesus Christ. But then we, we look at what, how does he build up the church, the congregation of God's people. First off, he indwells the church. 
right? So we all know the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, which talks about us as individuals. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? But previously in the same episode, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And he's not talking about the individual. He's talking about the community, the congregation of God's people. And that is, uh, the, the testament of the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit indwells both the believer individually and the, loc- the local church. And how he indwells the local church is not that, oh, I have the Holy Spirit, Nishant has the Holy Spirit, so we all come together and somehow there's an addition of all of the uh, indwelling of the Spirit. No, he inhabits the church of God in a unique way that is separate from the way he inhabits us as individuals. So to say that our experience of the Spirit's power in our life is necessarily incomplete without our participation in the sphere of the local church in which he indwells in a unique manner apart from his indwelling in us. So if we, were, if we want to experience the wholesome power of the Holy Spirit to transform us, it is not enough for us to be content with ourselves as the, the host, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit, but we have to participate in the local gathering, the community of God's people, because the Holy Spirit indwells the community of God's people in a separate manner from the way he indwells us. The second uh, thing to remember about him building up the church is he unites the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to 13, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So he, the Holy Spirit, binds us into one body regardless of social, racial, and other uh, divisions that might separate us in the world. He is the unifying agent in the community of God's people. So our identity, we have a new identity, that of being found in Christ. But that identity is expressed visibly in the united community of God's people. So we are united as individuals with Jesus Christ, but we are also united with each other in Christ. And the effective agent of that union is the Holy Spirit. Then we also remember that the Holy Spirit, in our unity, he also makes use of our diversity. Right? And that's in that same chapter, you know, if you go on reading in chapter 12, it says the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body that would not make it any less a part of the body. So we know that passage. Uh, but if you go down um, verse 24 onwards, it says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that all the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So God composes the body. The Spirit gives us the unity of essence, which is our identity, and the diversity of our function in that same body. So we have different roles. Uh, 
as, as members of the body, but we are united in the one body. And what's important to remember here is that you know, we care for each other, we suffer together, we rejoice together, but that in that analogy that Paul has, the member cannot have function apart from the body, right? But only in the body. So if you see like, you know, like zombie movies or whatever, they cut off the hand, the hand goes wriggling. That's not reality, right? Like the hand has its identity and expression and purpose when joined to the body, when controlled by the head. Similarly, we have fulfillment of our identity, of our function, of our expression, when we come together into the one body of God's people. That is where the Spirit guides us to come together to fulfill our roles. Otherwise, there will be a sense of unfulfillment, unfulfillment and unsatisfaction in our spiritual walk. So the Spirit aims to build up the church uh, until, as, you know, as Ephesians says, we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the Spirit aids in the building up of the church. So what is the practical implication? If we believe that the Spirit is uniquely present in the midst of God's people and, and builds us up and gives us expression of function, we should have a zeal for the gathering of the saints. You know, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, do not neglect to meet together as a habit of some, but encourage one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the church's gatherings are not events to participate in as much as they are necessities of our Christian life and growth. The church's gathering is a visible representation of the unity of God's people. So we should have a zeal, you know, maybe not for every single meeting, but definitely for the meetings where we come together to be united, to worship the Son, to hear God's word, to understand. We should have a zeal. We should be able to willingly sacrifice certain things in our life in order to have that zeal to attend the meetings of the local congregation. Secondly, we should have a zeal to serve each other and build up the body. We all have a part and purpose to play in the building up of the church. And we should have a zeal to come to serve one another, not just to come and be served, but also to ask, how can I serve within the congregation of God's people? So that's the Holy Spirit in the building up of the church. The second aspect of the Holy Spirit's role is in the sanctification of the church. And we know that the Bible talks, the New Testament talks quite a bit about individual sanctification, but it also talks uh, in a lesser uh, quantity of the sanctification of the corporate body through the Spirit. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we read verse 1 to 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Uh, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. It's, it's a sense of the corporate, of the congregation, of the community that is being sanctified in the Spirit. And, and there are other references. In Romans chapter 15, verse 16, it says how that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's another communal sanctification. First um, Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Again, the corporate 
entity or the corporate body of God's people it's sanctified as opposed to the individual sanctification. So the corporate sanctification is tied, obviously, to individual sanctification. Right? We all are in the process of being sanctified as individuals. But in a sense, it is also distinct. Where the individual sanctification necessarily focuses on us being conformed into the image of the likeness of the Son through the exhibition of certain fruits of the Spirit, as we read in Galatians chapter 5, the idea of corporate sanctification from the word sanctification is to be separate from the world or called out from the world to be holy unto God. So it is the idea of corporate sanctification is the separation from the world in order that we might be holy unto God, which is appropriate given that the title given to the third person of the Trinity is the spirit of holiness. He is the holy spirit. The work that he does in us is to make us holy, separated from the world, acceptable unto God. And the goal, and the goal of the Spirit's sanctification in the body of the believers of Jesus Christ. Uh, we can read, for example, in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So it is to purify us towards holy conduct so that we can perform good works. So the goal of the spirit sanctification is purity, which is, a, which is by essence a separation from the stain of the world so that we can be holy unto God and therefore do good works. And the means that the Spirit uses to sanctify us is the word of God. We read in John, if we read John chapter 17 and verse 17, it says, sanctify, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The means of sanctification for the people of God is the word of God. That is the primary means by which the Holy Spirit leads us towards holiness through the illumination and the application of the scriptures. The, the second way that he leads us is you know, by enabling us to exhort one another towards holiness. As we read in Ephesians chapter 4, when we speak the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So we speak the spiritual truth in love to exhort each other to grow then we fight against sin. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, exhort one another every day so that no, none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Another means by which the Holy Spirit aids in the sanctification of the church is through church discipline and restoration. And again, there are many passages, but Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 is important, particularly important. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, which basically you who are indwelt by the spirit of holiness should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So in exhorting each other, building each other up in love, to encourage each other to fight against sin, and also when needed to exercise the right of the people of God to, to, to conduct church discipline 
with a view towards restoring that son or daughter of God back into fellowship. And that's important. The, you see, the failure of many churches, for example, the Corinthian church, was both in the lack of building up in love and also a, a failure to confront serious sin in their midst. So what are the practical implications of the Holy Spirit's ministry in sanctification? One, we have to prioritize the reading, the preaching, and the studying of the Word of God in the Church of God over and against every function of the church. The one that truly stands out in a New Testament church and must be emphasized, without which the gathering of the saints is deprived of something essential, is the ongoing ministry of faithfully interpreting the scriptures and seeking the Spirit's guidance in applying it to us, individually and corporately. To be a spiritual church is to not merely be invested in activities, that bring us comfort or warm our hearts, but to be invested in the dutiful, the often tedious and laborious study of the word of God in order that we might be sanctified and made acceptable on a continual basis to God himself, regardless of whatever is in vogue or trendy in terms of what is supposed to be the ministry of the church. The, the, the testimony of the New Testament is that you emphasize the study of the revelation of God, which is the word of God. Secondly, we exhort one another towards holiness. We encourage one another in our spiritual walk inside the church and outside the church as well. We hold each other accountable. To truly understand the essence of being one body means to comprehend that a failure in our personal sanctification is not just an individual matter, but it deprives the corporate body of which we are a member of the benefits that would come to it where we progressing in our individual sanctification. You know, the church has a mandate to exhort and hold its members to account for their walk in life, regardless of where that walk is, 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 takes place. You know, when the Methodist church was formed, you know, John Wesley formed the Methodist church, he, his questions to those who wished to join his church were included two particular ones. Do you desire to be told of your faults? Do you desire to be told of all your fault, faults and that plain and home? Basically saying, if you come into this congregation, you accept that we will tell you of your faults and hold you accountable. In our culture today, which has an entitlement of individualism, and what we call, let's say, personal privacy or personal space. This seems jarring, but one of the mandates of the church is to hold each other accountable for their walk in the spirit in order that we might be exhorted to, to, to continue in our journey of sanctification. And finally, the body of the church, and specifically the leadership, must be ready to formally discipline serious sin in order to prevent a stain from spreading on the holiness of the community of God's people. We have to be vigilant that we who are separated and called to holiness do not have a stain that pollutes the status of the community of God's people. So he builds up the church. He aids in its, in its sanctification. The last one I want to focus on today is his role in the exercise of gifts within the church. And very often, like I said, 
this is the only thing that people will talk about. But it is an important topic. And too often we become more interested in the gifts themselves and how they are distributed and whether all of them or any of them are still uh, exercised rather than looking at why, what is the function of the gifts within the church of God. If you look at the New Testament, the, it talks broadly of two types of gifts that God gives to people. One category of gifts focuses on our salvation. Right? Salvation is the unspeakable gift um, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It is the, the gift of grace and righteousness. It's tied to salvation given to us. The Holy Spirit himself is a gift. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So these are all gifts that pertain to our salvation. The second category of gifts, what we call usually the gifts of the Spirit, usually referred uh, to in Greek by the word charismata, you know, from where we get the word charismatic, do not pertain to salvation, either for the working of salvation or for the confirmation of salvation, but it is entirely given to us to be put in service of others, specifically others who are our brothers and sisters in the church. So the spiritual gifts are not intended for us. It is not intended to work salvation. It's not intended to confirm salvation, but it is intended, it is given to us so that we can exercise it for the benefit of others. And there are uh, some key passages about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. Romans chapter 12. 1 Peter chapter 4. And to an extent, even Ephesians chapter 4. If you read 1 Peter chapter 4, verse uh, 7 to 11, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show us hospitality one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So you see the list of gifts in the New Testament is an example of the gifts that the Spirit gives you. But it is not the f exhaustive or the full list of the gifts that the Spirit gives us. Which is why when you read these passages, they all speak of different gifts. It includes love and hospitality and preaching and teaching, ministry in a general sense, exhortation, generosity, leadership, charity and acts of mercy. And, and, and if you read Corinthians, the now past gifts of you know, individual-led healing and tongues and foretelling, you know, prophesying the future and so on. So the list of gifts is, in, is an indicator. It is not the exhaustive list of all the gifts uh, that is given to us by the Spirit. So it's important for us to form and exercise a biblical understanding of the gifts. First off, as we read, gifts are given to individuals, but they are not the possession of the individual. The individual is the steward of the grace or the gift of God, but it is given for the benefit of the church. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So the individual does not possess the gift, he is the steward of that gift. In that sense, it is not inappropriate to think that the gifts are the possession of the church, which are manifested through individuals, if you understand what I mean. The gifts do not belong to, your gifts do not belong to you. They belong to God, and in a sense, they belong to the church in which it is to be 
within which it is to be exercised. And gifts are given, sovereignly given by God through the Spirit. And no one lays a claim on a gift due to heritage or inherent talent and so forth. The talents that we have may be linked to the gift that we possess to serve the church, but it is not necessary. Just because I'm a good speaker doesn't mean I will have the gift of preaching. I can earnestly seek it, and sometimes the Spirit confirms it, sometimes the Spirit may not. Maybe my Spirit is completely opposite the talent that I have, maybe my, the gift that is given to me. And everyone is given a gift. You know, Romans chapter 12 uh, says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So everyone has a gift. They're different uh, from people to people. They might be the same in two people. My two people might have the gift of hospitality. You know, six people might have the gift of, of teaching. It's not unique to one individual, but everyone has a gift, and they are to be exercised for the benefit of others in the church. As we have already seen clearly, they are given to build up the church. First Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 26 says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. The gift is exercised for the benefit of others. That's the lesson, for example, of the parable of talents in Matthew chapter uh, 25. See, the wicked servant, when you go read that parable again at home, you'll notice the wicked servant was punished not for possessing the gift, but for failing to exercise it for the benefit of his master. So we have gifts. We seek what is our gift. We try to exercise it, but we have to exercise it for the benefit of others. See, the church has no need of bodybuilders. Right? You know what a bodybuilder does? Exercises in order to show forth himself. Right? Like they stand uh, oiled as if they have lemons in their armpits. Right? Like, like that's the bodybuilder. The church has no need for bodybuilders. An unpolished gift used in faith, trusting that it will edify others through the spirit and the grace of God is worth more than a polished gift that lays dormant or lays unused. And and. And this is what, again, J.I. Packer says it in a very good way. He says, gifts for service are given to every Christian, and all gifts are given to be used so that each person's proper form of service must be found and fitted into the congregation's ongoing life. Otherwise, the spirit will be quenched to a degree, and the growth of the church towards the stature of Christ will be obstructed. Ministry is to be a matter of both and, not either or. That is, we do not all have the same ministry, but we are all in ministry together. So for one of us to say, I have this gift, but I will not exercise it in the congregation is in a sense, we are impeding the work of the Spirit in the community of God's people to build us towards the full maturity of Jesus Christ. So we have to exercise our gifts for others. And the last thing to remember is that the Spirit is involved both in the commission and the exercise of the gift. So when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you know, he talks about uh, revelation and prophecy and so on. But he says, you can all prophesy one by one and, and, and spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. And he says, some of you should stay silent for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So it's not enough that we have the gift, but we also need to exercise it in a spiritual God-honoring manner. We should also be careful not to use the gifts or the talents that God has given us to tear others down instead of building them up. So we have the gift of speech. We use it to build others up in love, being forceful where needed to exhort them to holiness, but we do not 
use it as a means of tearing each other down. And we also should be open to the possibility that the Spirit can work in miraculous ways in people in order that the exercise of the gift within a church is not expressed outside. And I say that because I've often heard this, oh, he, I'm specifically talking, let's say, about preachers. He's a lion in the pulpit, but a lamb at home. So it kind of, what, he's, what they're saying is that, oh, he's very forceful and convicting on the pulpit, but when we see him outside, there's nothing of that demeanor. And we live in a culture which, so, which says we have to be authentic, which means that we have to be the same personality throughout you know, our, our life and throughout when we interact with people. But we have to be open with the possibility. In fact, it is, you know, we have to fully expect the possibility that there are people in the church who exercise a gift within the church for the building up of the church, for the edification of the church, and that is completely opposite what their demeanor or their personality is outside. Because that is the Spirit's ministry. The Spirit commissions the gift and he exercises, helps us in exercising the gift for the benefit of others in the church of God's people. So what are the practical implications of that? Very quickly, the obvious one is that our church's ordering of our worship services reflects our faith in the varied distribution of uh, certain gifts within the congregation, you know, like the hymn, the psalm, and the spiritual song, to be used in an orderly fashion to glorify God and build each other up. Secondly, the church needs to continually exhort its members without prejudice to awaken and train and exercise the gifts that God has given them because to not do so is in a sense to deprive the community and to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, we need to take note and affirm those who serve and faithfully exercise their gifts, both to encourage them and to show forth their godly example. Like I said, there's so many, there's gifts of, of ministry that we do not even often wonder about, right? Like someone actually bought the bread and cut it. Someone filled the cups that we partook of. Those are all people exercising their gifts for the edification of others. And, and we don't do those things to be honored or to seek glory, but as a community, we need to affirm and recognize those ministries, both to encourage them and to show forth a godly example of what it means to, 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 to use the gifts of the Spirit for the building up of the church. So in conclusion, the Spirit aids in building up the church, it aids in the sanctification of the church, and it helps us use our spiritual gifts for the benefit of others in order that we might attain to the maturity of Jesus Christ. You know, when the Bible ends it, in Revelation chapter 22, one of the last verses of the Bible is verse 17 of chapter 20. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. It says, the Holy Spirit says, Maranatha, come Lord. The bride, which is the church of Christ, also says, in fellowship with the spirit, through the work of the spirit, through the ministry of the indwelling spirit, the bride of Christ also says, come. The Holy Spirit awaits the return of the Son of God, as does the church in whom he indwells. But until that day, may he, the Spirit be present, reside and be president over our life as a community. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you a lot for your word that has been revealed to us in your Son and has been given to us 
by the Spirit and, 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 and interpret it for us through the Spirit, O oh Lord. We thank you that uh, these things would take a matter of study and of, uh, and of uh, effort are made clear to us, O oh Lord, through the work of your Spirit so that we can properly discern how to glorify you in the midst of your people. We pray, O oh Lord, that in these coming days we will be more uh, convinced and convicted of the needs and uh, necessities of being a congregation of your people, especially with regards to our ongoing building and sanctification and the proper use of the gifts that you've given us uh, for the benefit of others, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we stay firm in our convictions, not because of anything in us or our heritage or tradition, but rather that we only seek to do what your Bible, what your word asks us to do, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you'll bless us in that regard and guide us through your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you'll come soon. But if you're coming, tarries, that you'll continue to bless us and, and through your spirit guide us. We ask these things in mighty and mass name for Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.